Blog Talk Radio. at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and joining me today is Sasha Mitchell for a discussion about databases for family history research of enslaved people. Now, this discussion will focus on records that are kept at the county level, why enslaved people may use the surnames of the seller, buyer, grantors or the grantees are another name altogether. Finding enslaved people that may be sold across the county or state lines, searching for a family member that may have been split up. Sasha Mitchell is a family and community historian, former chair of the African American Heritage for Asheville and Buncombe County, North Carolina and researching for over 30 years. She loves genealogy research for its power to connect people to history, to places and time, and to communities. And at a time when DNA is exposing connections between white and black families that have long been hidden, family history is helping people to heal and build connections. So let me give a warm welcome to Sasha Mitchell. Welcome, Sasha. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be on your program. Well, I'm happy to have you. And I want to just start really at your beginning. I mean, what led you to this particular interest in genealogy research? Well, um, I am biracial, and so I have research on my white side and my black side of the family. And I can say that African-American family history has really been spurred on by the interest and the joy that my grandparents responded with when I would share all the new discoveries with them. Um, they just were so excited. You know, my mother her history was very much easier to find. So part of it also was that there was still such a mystery behind my black family history. And also, I'm a computer nerd. I love tables, I love databases, and I love technology. And I like to harness it to, you know, to my benefit. And um, I also have found myself at this point in time working at large scales where I research, you know, many people in one county or many people who are enslaved by a group of people. 
So it's got me thinking about it, uh, research in kind of different ways. So that's kind of what brought me to this point. And I guess, you know, when you say you have uh, research at the county level, which is community research, is probably a very rewarding experience just to be able to pull this information together about a community. Uh, yes. Um, well, when, you, when we research our enslaved ancestors, if you get back to 1870, very often they are living in a community with neighbors who first might be the white people who enslaved them and may also be the other people who were enslaved by that same family. And they're all in a very small area and they, you know, know each other and there's um, a real connection between them. So just looking at your own family isn't enough sometimes, and you may find a great deal of connection in the families all around you, particularly um, when you talk about the white enslaving families who very often married cousins and kind of kept their wealth within a family unit, um, extended though it may be, <laughs> uh, it's, there's a lot of connection to be found just by looking at a community rather than just the individuals or even one family. Right. So while we're, t- we're talking about databases, so why mm-hmm. are you proposing or why are you even looking at databases for family history research of enslaved people? Um, mainly because I know there are millions of people like me who research their own family history and get to the same points where somebody was enslaved and they kind of can't find where that they come from beyond that. They're, they're looking for a last name and there are fluid last names. And um, that also communities are starting to talk about reparations. And when we talk about reparations, there's going to be at some point a discussion of what exactly are we talking about? What is that history? And this is another part of the hidden history of the United States is this, you know, I'll call it the shadow history of the families of African-Americans who didn't make the history books, you know, as much as the white people did. You'd read these county histories and they're kind of almost invisible in some communities unless you're really looking closely. Um, So, I want to reach out to the people who who share this interest, think about the communities and government entities that might play a role in helping. And um, another thing is that last year I had thinking about a similar kind of quandary about um, data and history. And I wrote an open letter to the city of Asheville, which made the news last year for um, approving reparations at, at their city council meeting. And I, I asked, I hoped that they would partner with the university and use the data of housed in the records of urban renewal that are kept at the university and quantify the value of black wealth taken from black community during urban renewal. And just putting it out there and reaching out to the right groups of people, it's actually happening right now. A university professor has gotten a grant, and she's converting that, you know, digitized material into data. And then we can, you know, the city will have some information about that part when we talk about reparations. They could talk about this part of history and have some real numbers to back up 
you know, why do, why do we have these kind of differences in wealth between white and black families today? Because of this history that's not so long ago. So I kind of thought, well, that worked. Let's try it again. <laughs> Put out this idea right. that has some facts to back it up, that this is a good idea and the many people might support it and see how we can't make it happen. And, you know, when you said you reached out to them with a recommendation that they convert the records of urban renewal into a database, I mean, have you ever seen this done before? Um, no. Uh, I No. <laughs> I just, um, I had been reading these documents. I had, you know, deeply researched the Black Business District of Asheville and, um, had talked with many families who had property, um, had traced many families back to the days of enslavement and to the current day in this city and the county, and um, kind of just came back to thinking, you know, people just talk in Asheville, as in many places, there's this huge disparity between wealth and health outcomes and every kind of metric that you use to measure, you know, people's life quality. Um, between white and black, and there's these same disparities that show up. And there are very, you know, clear-cut and sometimes data-backed, you know, reasons why that we can find, you know, why why does a family that has had both parents working, maybe going back for 200 years in a community, have no wealth? Well, we could look at urban renewal and see how that really played out in terms of taking away generational wealth and what can we do about it today? So I think I just, you know, I knew that those records were there, that, that they had sent the records to the um, archives at the university. And there's university professors. Um, one of them was D Dr. Dwight Mullen, who'd been doing a thing called State of Black Asheville, where he would, he was working in more of the present day, kind of showing those disparities with his class. And I just thought, why, why wouldn't we take this kind of study, looking at those disparities, and go back in time um, to, rec you know, to really put a number on it? And what I so hear what you I saying, that. though, is that the information is there. We have, mm -hmm. It just needs to be re-engineered in another way so that we could really understand what's happening. But I want to yes, understand and this also, is similar. <laughs> right, that's what I'm hearing. So what are some of the roadblocks that you're hoping to overcome with this database? Because this, you know, others are listening to you. They may even get ideas from you to do the same thing, go to their particular county level and ask the same questions. So tell us some of the roadblocks that you, you're hoping to overcome with this database. Um, well, for one, uh, if you go back and research, you may find your ancestor living in a community. And then if you look back through the deeds um, for people with that same last name, you may even find your ancestor on a slave deed where they're being sold um, within the county. But sometimes they just have already been sold and they arrived in that county. And they may be named on a record, um, but with a different last name. And just so happened that they were brought into a home and then those people, you know, grew up and passed away and the man left this 
woman to his granddaughter. And she's married and she has a different last name. And that might be the name that this enslaved woman takes. Or she could take the name of, you know, the the daughter's husband's family because maybe her people came from there. You know, there's a lot of different variables that we won't know about and we can't know about without a little extra help. Um, so that's one thing, that, that the records are kept at a county level and that if you're sold across the county line, how on earth would you know which one or, you know, how to get to it? So there's a real gap there in terms of the databases that exist now. Um, also, the fluid last names. Um, mm-hmm. Usually there are patterns to those names that are selected. And if it's not the name of the last person who enslaved someone, it's the name of it's the name of how they were known in the community, how they were best known, and probably how they were best likely to be reunited with their family. Um, but that name may come from in a in a white family that's that's doing the buying and selling and sometimes leaving family for bequests. They. You know, it could be the grandparents' last names, the parents' last names, the daughter-in-law's last name. And to me, that's a really big, you know, data point that you might have a field that represents associated surnames that would give that extra clue to people. And those are known um, in many cases, especially for the larger slaveholding families. Um, And then in the case of people, you know, sometimes they would say, there was a whole enslaved family and they'd sell the children off one by one. This one goes to my daughter in Mississippi and this one goes to my son in Tennessee and they have different last names. Um, So you want to take an individual line for each person. Each person is their own, you know, person. They may not be always traveling with their family. They may likely be separated and um, that there's work to be done on the level of the historic archivist part where they've done the work of going through all these documents and doing a name index for white people who are researching their ancestors and they say, oh, look, they're mentioned in this document. But even when they have found the names of enslaved people listed in those documents, they don't list them too. And maybe it's because they don't have last names. Maybe it's because plain old racism. But let's also take advantage of those publicized, they're usually on the web, um, historic collections, and make sure that they are complete in what names they include. So I think all those parts getting put together um, are, you know, include a bunch of roadblocks that are what keeps people from being able to connect across that brick wall of slavery. And not only that, I mean, you talk, you you listed, you know, several different scenarios of what would prevent a person from actually finding the um, the ancestor, but also uh, just looking at the different databases right now. Have you found any that you feel meet the need, or is the need still there to create? Uh, a centralized database where you know where family researchers could go to? Um, I'd like to think that we could build on something that already exists. And one Mm -hmm. such site 
uh, is the enslaved.org site that was just put out, I think, last year. And it mm-hmm. lists enslaved people who were listed in historic documents. But its limitation is that they only accept contributions from scholarly work, you know, the, it's people who are publishing the paper in a historic journal. Um, they want to vet it. And I understand that they need to do that, but I would say let there be an, a branch of that database, perhaps, that um, people like me who are, you know, family historians and who have collected and maybe have a will that we've put information on Aphroginius and we might have put it on, you know, different sites on Roots, um, Roots Web or, yeah, put them put it out there. But there's no kind of place where it can be left where there, someone else might connect to it across the state line. You know, they have to look right there in the county for it. Um, so also we have white descendants of slaveholders in groups like, um, I can't think of the name, Beyond coming Ken. to the table, mm-hmm. Beyond Kin coming to the table, who are trying to come to terms with their their ancestors enslaving people and want to do something to kind of contribute to repair for the families that were separated. And they're finding those documents and doing what they can to, you know, share that information online so that people can find it. Let this be that place. And scholars and, um, you know, historic archivists like the people who have the Southern Historic Collection at UNC Chapel Hill and stuff like that, people who have knowledge of digital humanities, they could chime in, um, and government entities like registrars of deeds and um, that those kind of groups could contribute. You would ask me about sites, actually. There is a group called People Not Property, a site that was formed, and I was involved with the formation of that. And it was a uh, hundred and something counties in North Carolina where the registrars of deeds from those counties um, have digitized their records and are undertaking the effort to transcribe and get the names of those people into a database. Um, and they do allow individuals to contribute, but it's only for the state of North Carolina. The original thought behind that project was to start with North Carolina, South Carolina, and Georgia, but it had to get scaled back. Um, perhaps that might grow um, into this database, this, you know, hoped-for database. There's the Library of Virginia that has their Unknown No More and various ones. Or maybe it would be a new site altogether. Um, there are some sites that have taken on uh, the work of naming families like the, uh, the Georgetown sale, like the, that group, the Georgetown, I can't remember that number, but they have listed um, historic documents and kind of if you look for a name, you can click on it and see who their family unit was. So there are, there are starts and there are certainly lots of efforts, but I, I've never heard of anything of this nature, but it seems like something that a lot of people could really get behind. So you're talking about just a very comprehensive database where mm-hmm. the various databases that you've already mentioned, it seems like the biggest challenge is that they're not cross-referencing each other. 
and uh, that that seems to be what's needed. And earlier, yes. people could be in a different county, and how do you track where they are or sold in a different state, and how is that tracking taking place? Mm-hmm. So what kinds of records are you finding or do you feel are most valuable for a contribution to these various databases or this one big database? Uh, probably the most accessible is the wills. Um, people find the wills of the people who enslaved their ancestors and they've got a copy and they've got it in their own research. And they might say, oh, I can contribute that one. They might have already put it on Afrogenius, as I have done. Um, Civil War pension records, I've heard about, I've never had one of my own, um, list the names of parents, enslavers, siblings, uh, those freedmen, um, the bank records do the same. Slave narratives also include, you know, people just talking about their names and the names of the people who enslaved them and their siblings and their parents. Um, cohabitation records often do the same. Um, not They don't name parents and stuff like that, but um, bills of sale, slave bills of sale, which are often included in the deeds of a county. And the death records and marriage records of the children of formerly enslaved people and their children will name their parents. And sometimes they'll name the parents with different last names depending on who made the record. And there's usually a reason why both are true, <laughs> that, you know, there was one reason why their mother was called, in my case, Phoebe Porter, another when she was called Phoebe Kincaid, another she was called Phoebe Sanders, and another her married name, Phoebe Sales, is all the same woman, and it's kind of telling the story of who enslaved her and, and who her people were. So that may happen. And I can imagine, yeah, how long did it take you to connect the dots with those four surnames for Phoebe? Oh, it took a little while. <laughs> um, as I say, I've been doing this for, for over 30 years, but um, the name Porter is the name of the enslaved man who claimed her as his child on the record of people who used to cohabitate but are no longer cohabitating for with County, Virginia. Um, and I know that there are cases where a man has claimed the child, but it turned out that the slave owner was really the father. Um, but it's the best I have. He did claim her and he named her, he, she would be Phoebe Porter if she had the typical maiden name structure that we use now. Um, she was then enslaved by a Sanders family and then when Mr. Sanders died, his wife moved in with her cousin, Mr. Ken Cannon. Uh, somebody wrote, kill Cannon, but I figured it out. <laughs> and then uh, when she got married, she became a sale. So her children on the various death records and marriage records could, could have used any one of those names. And, you know, that's, those are clues. And they're, they're, not, they're not wrong. <laughs> they're just different. And, and it's up to me to figure it out. But, you know, you're, you're really putting out a big challenge here. I guess I want to call it even a call to action. Because even if you just, mm-hmm. let's just think of just the, all of the Civil War pension files of the USCT. Mm-hmm. 
I mean, I have gone through many of those files, and yes, I have found them to be so valuable because if an individual was enslaved, they will say who the enslaver was. They will mention mm-hmm. their parents. They will mention if there are children, children, or the marriage, or when the marriage took place, the slave man. I mean, there's so much information just mm-hmm. to pull out of that group of records. Not to mention, you know, you mentioned the slave narratives, and yes, we know they're there. They do exist. And in some cases, yes, they are saying information about the the uh, enslaver. However, has anyone ever taken those narratives and then turned around and made a database out of them? Uh, this is really a, a big challenge. So tell me, what, what is your call to action? <laughs> what is your call well, to action? What would you like to, to, to see happen? For right now, I'd like, I just made a Facebook group and I made a quick website on Google Sites for people who are interested who say, hey, wow, yeah, that sounds like a great idea. I want to get into this and see how I can help to just join the group or, or fill out the form so I can keep in touch with email and we can figure out a, a plan. Because um, it may be a letter writing campaign to an existing um, site. And just mm-hmm. to your point about this being a great deal of work, and I know it is, um, one thing I have, in, I think we have in our favor is the idea of crowdsourcing. And that is that all of us researchers do this because we love it. And we very often, I, I don't know what everyone's um, inspirations are but or why they do it, um, but for me, a lot of it is to leave breadcrumbs for other people. I'm always, you know, if I find a random picture, I'm going to make a little family tree or put them in my own as an unlinked person and name them and put their picture up and put as much information as I can in there in case someone ever goes looking, they'll find something. And then, you know, that might be the little clue they need. And I've done that with other records, even um, uh those slave narratives I've because they touched on work I was doing. Um, But um, I think if all of us thought of the crowdsourcing aspect and had that, you know, if there was the ability to contribute for one and um, these big sites like uh, heritage, uh, world heritage and ancestry and family search, they are often made up. There's the databases that have family information of crowdsourced information um, and then the other part is that governments, um, especially if we're talking about reparations, but um, when we're talking about equity and justice, uh, we, I think there's a responsibility, particularly for governments that were involved in the slave trade, to right some wrongs and do whatever they can to, to repair the fact that families were torn apart. So maybe there's government money that can help with it. Maybe there are foundations willing to contribute to the effort. So I don't think it's insurmountable. But for now, I would like for just uh, people to rally together and maybe somebody will say, you know what, I work with the enslaved database and this is a great idea and we're we're ready to do this. What are <laughs> what are the things you're talking about that you need in this in these fields um of data that are so, you know, that you're mentioning. 
I don't know, but I know that I've seen this work. So I'm just putting it out there, and I'm going to hope for the best. <laughs> well, I hope that those that are listening will will follow up with you. So tell us once again how they can connect with you. On Facebook, I made a group called Enslaved Ancestors Database Group, and I'm I guess I'll just, I did share the link to that site on that page. Um, I know you mentioned you were unable to post the link on your show site. Maybe it'll work a little later. Um, Right. But there's a page where people can fill out a form just so I can create some kind of email list. um, And I'll keep that site going with updates and share some more resources about these other sites like enslaved.org and people not property. And um, we'll just build on what we, what skills we have as a group and see what steps we might take to move it to the next level. And maybe groups like coming to the table and um, beyond kin also have some thoughts about how this, how they could contribute to the work. Um, there, you know, Family Search also has a, a an army of volunteers <laughs> who who transcribe records and and do this work. So um, I think it's it's certainly doable, and it's right. needed. And I understand that Ancestry is also working on getting uh, additional information online about. Uh, wills and deeds and actually identifying those uh, names of the enslaved that are listed on those wills and deeds, which I think would be just absolutely wonderful. Uh, But, of course, that is a database that we will have to pay for. And so we'll have Mm -hmm. to look at uh, what, what can come about so that individuals can start and, uh, finding the answers to the questions, where's my ancestor, where did they go, what's the name, who who enslaved them, uh, is something that I think we all want to see. We want to see this comprehensive database, and as you mentioned, there are databases out there. Uh, certainly there are a lot that are listed on enslaved.org, but once again, you're saying maybe it others will have to be able to uh, enter information into that particular database because right now you said it's only for scholars. Well, let's Mm -hmm. keep this conversation going, folks. Uh, Please join the website so that you can start talking. We can all start talking about databases because, after all, that's what we're doing. We're we're family – uh, historians, and we want to be able to have the documentation, the accurate documentation of our ancestors that were enslaved. So I want to just thank you so much for joining me today, Sasha. Uh, you've kind of given us some food for thought here. So, hey, keep keep it going. I'm so proud of the fact that I heard you say you wrote a letter and you got some action <laughs> And so that's something that other people will want to hear about. You know, you got action. You know, you got people thinking. And so this is this is good. We need to keep this going on. 
So I look forward to everyone else tuning in next week. Remember, folks, your ancestors left footprints, and we want to find those footprints, and hopefully the databases will give us the information we want. Thank you so much for joining Research at the National Archives and Beyond. Blog Talk Radio, this is your host, Bernice Alexander-Bennett. Goodbye, Sasha. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me.